They had talked about it for years, traveling for a year straight. It would be amazing. Matt and Lucy finally decided that the perfect vehicle for this adventure would be the motorcycle. They would ride two up from the UK down through Africa to the very bottom, South Africa. It would be the adventure of a lifetime. But there are some hurdles to work out, like one, they didn't have a motorcycle. Two, they didn't have a motorcycle license. Three, they didn't have any experience riding an adventure motorcycle. But that didn't stop them from putting their plan in motion. Now, it, it can't be said that it's been easy for them choosing this route. They've had their challenges. Some of those were even before they left home, like this one. Picture this. While getting the feel of this fully loaded adventure bike, two up, Matt and Lucy visit Lucy's parents' house. Now, Lucy's parents were adamantly opposed to the idea of riding a motorcycle down through Africa. They hate motorcycles. They wanted nothing to do with it, and they wouldn't even acknowledge that they were about to do this trip. And they certainly didn't want to come out and see the bike. And Matt, under all that tension and stress and the weight of the big bike, makes a huge mistake that adds, well, insult to injury that I'm sure Lucy's parents won't soon forget. That story coming up. And then while on the trip, they're just getting into the rhythm of things and they arrive at a border only to find that the country has changed its rules for the TIP, the temporary import permit, which effectively puts a, a roadblock on their only safe route south. And their choice was either to take a dodgy route, a risky route where their lives could be at risk or pay a king's ransom to ship their bike. And how will they ship their bike? That story also today. This whole thing is a story of adventure and mishaps, but it's also a story about people connection and learning through doing. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. <laughs> okay. So, my name is Lucy. I am from the UK, the south of the UK. And uh, my job was um, managing a gymnastics program. And I was doing this in Singapore for four years. Yeah, my name is Matt. Um, yeah, so we both actually quit our jobs. So right now we're doing nothing. Yeah. But um, up until about eight months ago or so, um, I was in engineering and business management. And yeah, we were in Singapore for four years before we, we did this trip. Matt and Lucy, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Good to be on. Nice to meet you, Jim. You guys are right now sitting in Jungle Junction in Kenya, waiting for your motorcycle. You're, you have no bike. How does that happen? 
Well, we get stuck in Sudan and uh, the Ethiopia border, I think it's affected everyone. Um, quite a lot of people, actually. Um, but our bike is in the air and it's on its way to us and it will be with us, I think, by tonight. Yeah, this was a this was a big problem for us, actually, at the time. Or, or it certainly felt like it for our trip. Uh, we'd just taken the ferry from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, to uh, Suakin, near Port Sudan. And we'd spent just a few days traveling through Sudan to the, to the capital, Khartoum. And we were like three days away, four days away from going to the border and crossing to Ethiopia when we saw a report on, I think we first saw it on a Facebook group, Overlanding Africa, that uh, a guy had got stuck there. They had refused to issue a temporary import permit. They'd refused to accept his carne. And they said he would need to pay a cash deposit equal to the total tax, uh, import tax and duties that would be due on his car. Mm. So for his car, it was $80,000. And his was a very old car. So how many times the value is is the tax? Well, we, we spent days, if not maybe a week or two, researching this and talking to this guy and visiting the Ethiopian embassy, calling various other embassies. We managed to slowly figure out what this new law was all about and how it would affect us. So it took a bit of time to understand what was official, what's not official, what the rules actually are. And as far as we understand, they, they, Ethiopia basically put a ban on importing certain luxury goods, including cars and motorcycles. But the fallout of that is they stopped issuing temporary import permits at the border or really allowing you to bring your own vehicle in um, without putting a deposit down for 100% of the tax value. So we managed to find online a way to calculate the tax for uh, whatever vehicle it was using the HS code. For an old car that's more than seven years old and an engine bigger than three liters, there's a 500% excise tax. <laughs> and for motorcycles, if it's, an, if it's a used motorcycle, it's 200% excise tax. And we were told for our bike, because it's six years old, but they said it's still classified as new. There's only a 5% excise tax. But there's all these other taxes like 35% import tax, there's VAT, there's withholding tax. And the way they add it all together for our bike, it would be ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 or something. Mm. It's just too much. And there's so many things wrong with this, this new yeah. I don't think they thought about how this would affect tourists coming in with cars. It's to protect the economy, but it doesn't work on so many different levels. Uh, I think maybe it's not the forum to like go into all the details, but you know, just handing over that much cash to a to a bank in Ethiopia and expecting to get it back at the next border is probably very naive. We actually talked to we, a bank and they yeah. said they're not ready to issue these guarantees for such a large amount of money. So on so many levels, it just doesn't work, and it's effectively closed the country and actually closed the entire East Coast route of Africa with it for overlanders. Yeah, because Ethiopia is really the only country that's safe enough to drive through for overlanders. Yeah, You've got Chad, that borders um, Sudan. Sudan, and Eritrea on the other side. That's closed. It goes through to Somalia, so really there's no other land route to take other than Ethiopia. The, so. the only other option that gets you through quickly to Uganda or Kenya is South Sudan. But everyone we talk to and all the research we do suggests it's just too dangerous. What does it end up costing you then to fly your bike over? <laughs> uh, so we were, we were communicating with 
a few other bikers trying to figure out the best way to do this, whether we put it on a plane or we share a container. And the quotes are all just, they're all just crazy now. But we were thinking to share a container from Jeddah, but even that was $7,500 from Jeddah to Mombasa. Yeah, this was for one container and we were looking at having maybe five bikes in there. Five people were interested, but there was just too much risk for us to go back to uh, Jeddah, the ferry towards... if anybody's ever done it, you, everybody knows how we feel. <laughs> but the ferry between Jeddah and Sudan is is not very reliable at all. I mean, it was delayed for us for four days and it took a lot longer than expected. So it's just timing. It's just um, a bit of a risk for us to take. Yeah, so it's still expensive. It'll take us a few days to get back, maybe a week. And we have to pay for the ferry again. And there's all these risks. And then you've got to wait maybe three weeks or four weeks for the, the container to arrive in Mombasa. So in the end, we decided to air freight bike. So we were going backwards and forwards to Khartoum Airport over a few days, uh, meeting with the agents and airlines and getting various quotes. And in the end, we paid around $3,000, including uh, the crates and all the fees. We just have to pay some additional customs fees when we get the bike from Nairobi Airport tomorrow. Mac, uh, you guys said in, in January of this year, you had no bike, no motorcycle license, no gear, no experience. How do you, how do you manage True. that? Like, like <laughs> let, let's back up here. So this, that was January. This is only November and you guys have been on the road for a long time now. I think you left, when did you leave? May? We left in May. Yeah. So it's, so, it's so coming you, up to five months. Okay. So six how months. do you go six from, months, from in January, having nothing like that to getting on the road in May? What, what, what happened here? How did this happen? <laughs> All right, maybe I'll rewind a little bit. So while we were in Singapore, we knew we would only be there for three or four years uh, working and then we'd head back to the UK and we wanted to travel in between and do a a big trip, like a year of traveling. Uh, It's always been our dream to do something like this. Uh, And I think it was around the time there was some buzz about the Long Way Up series coming out. And I'd watched the Long Way series as 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 a kid, as when I was a teenager or whatever. So they had the I, new series coming out, yeah, the so, electric bikes. So I'd always had the inspiration to do something like this. But honestly, when I watched it when I was young, I don't think it ever really crossed my mind that I, I could. I'd be in a position to do that. Mm-hmm. But then this new series started uh, getting some buyers and I was reading things and we watched it together. And, and then this sort of sparked an idea of maybe we could use a bike to travel because neither of us really wanted to do backpacking. Uh, we thought a car would be too expensive. So we weren't sure how we would you know, see, see the world. So a bike seemed like such a good idea. Um, and I have a little bit of a background with bikes. My dad was a biker. I was riding dirt bikes when I was, you know, five, six years old. And then till, until I was about a teenager, I, but I never did my license and I never did any like big bike stuff like enduro or motocross, none of that. And I just didn't really ride a motorbike till we started the trip, to be honest. And Lucy has I have, no background I with have bikes. I have absolutely no background of bikes. And my parents were in denial that we were going to do this trip until <laughs> until we actually left. Yeah, but, really, until the day we left. <laughs> so the idea first for the trip, though, is just travel. And, and then you're thinking, okay, maybe do a bike. So when, yeah, was, exactly. when was this going on in your head? Is this like like last December or something? When, when were you deciding No, this? this is actually this is a long time pandemic. ago. Yeah, this is like 2019. I think. So after we watched the long way up together and the idea started to form, uh, 
in my usual kind of style, I went on an endless like research craze. Oh, watching when, YouTube videos. And, and when Matt gets into this, he will have a spreadsheet and the spreadsheet will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All of the information. Listening to endless uh, Adventure Rider radio podcasts and following all the like YouTubers. And well, This doesn't sound like much passion though. It sounds like all data driven. No, no. Yeah. So that's, that's like where the planning come in. Because I sort of thought, well, how, how, do we, how do I do this? I don't know what we need to buy. I don't know how much money we need. I just had no idea. So yeah, being from an engineering background, pull up a spreadsheet, Jim, of course, <laughs> and start plugging in some numbers, right? Like how much is fuel roughly? How, how far are we going to go? How much is a bike? And then through watching all these videos and reading articles, I had like a kit list and I sort <laughs> of find, because we had literally nothing. Like we had to buy every single piece of equipment, whether it's new or used, we needed it. So I, I, and I wanted to know, could we afford to do this? How much was it going to cost? Mm-hmm. So slowly but surely, a plan was born. And I started suggesting it more and more to Lucy, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> and the, I think the in, initial reaction wasn't good. Well, the so, initial reaction was like, what? How are we going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even know anything about a bike. <laughs> yeah. Well, well then that brings me back to my question, and even in a stronger way, because you're saying, you know, you're, you're an engineer, you're, you're data-driven, you've done all this. So how do you end up in January of this year with no bike, no license, no gear, and no experience for a trip that you're about to head off in? Yeah. So this trip that we've had in mind for so long. Oh, yeah. I know. Yeah. 2019. I mean, that's yeah. a long time. You yeah. Had, you had a lot of time there. Yeah. It sounds like we planned for years, yet didn't do anything until yeah. like two months before we left. But now there's, there's, a, there's a good reason. So we, the original idea for the trip was to ride a bike back from Singapore to the UK, like riding home, kind of. That was the, the idea of the trip. And then the pandemic happened and yeah. everything was, was delayed. And in, in Singapore, it's not so easy to do a bike license to get a big enough bike for the two of us to sit on, i.e. Oh, like the bike license. Or, or, or something like that. The bike license would take a few years. It yeah. You, too long. You do a small bike license and then you have to ride that for one year and then you do a medium one. And it takes a good three years. And at the time of planning, we thought we would be leaving in like a year or two. So I didn't even start it. So being in Singapore, we had no way of with buying a bike or any, anywhere to ride a bike really without a license. Cause it's a very small country. There's no like dirt tracks. There's nowhere to ride adventure bikes apart from on the road. So we just couldn't do anything until and, I went back to the UK. And then of course it was COVID times and it was lockdown and we couldn't travel. And throughout the majority of those two years, we couldn't really do much at all in Singapore leisure yeah. wise. So, mm. um, yeah, we just, we couldn't. The time we couldn't flew prepare. by. Yeah, we, we had no way to really prepare other than my spreadsheets, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So you go to the UK though. When did when did you go to the UK? Okay, so just before the pandemic really kicked off, when I was planning this, I booked to do the first parts of my license in the UK because you have to start by doing basic training mm-hmm. on a one two five. It's very straightforward. And you do your theory test for motorcycles, which is slightly different to the car one. Once you've done that, then if you're over 25, as I am, I'm 32 now, you can do like a fast track course to ride an unlimited CC bike. Yeah. But I didn't have time in one trip to do all of this. So when we went back in 20, Christmas 2019, I did the first two things. But these two things are valid for two years. 
<laughs> and then the pandemic happened and we couldn't go home for two years. So then we find ourselves going home in December 2021 for Christmas. I booked in the fast track um, lessons and test. And I think the test was like the a day few days, yeah, like days before yeah. the theory test ran out, expired, mm -hmm. and I would have to start again. Wow. So we got home finally, COVID, like things opened up. We were able to get home. I took the test and I failed. <laughs> and then he had to do it all over again from the beginning. Yeah. But we were due, we were due to fly home like just a few days later. So I didn't have time to do everything again. So we were then just thinking, okay, I have to come back again in, in April when we actually leave Singapore. But, and then it's really like do the test, leave for the trip. So it was really coming down to the wire. But then the two of us actually caught COVID in England and we couldn't fly home. We had to reschedule our flight and it meant that I could start everything again. <laughs> and I managed to do it all. And I passed the test, like, I think two days before we flew back to Singapore. And in the midst of all this, uh, actually between failing the first test and passing the second one, we, we bought a BMW R1200 GS Adventure, a bike that is so much bigger and heavier and more powerful than anything I'd ever sat on. <laughs> and we had to get the guy we bought it from to ride it to my parents' house because I didn't have a license. Yeah. And then we opened, we come home and it was like Christmas time. Well, it was Christmas time. We had all of our boxes in our room that we had just got shipped to Matt's parents' house. And we were opening our gear, our, our, our riding like um, bags, everything we were just opening it like yeah, on christmas day again <laughs> we'd spent the run up to christmas like ordering slowly all the things we would need did you not feel somewhat intimidated by the fact that you're taking on such a huge thing you have no experience riding not to mention the the thought process i, I imagine your parents would have said something or your friends would have said <laughs> you know would have looked at it a different way but i mean you, you got this bike that's huge you have no experience with it you're going to ride two up and then you're going to be loaded <laughs> and on top of all this you're going to go through countries oh yeah we were we were a little bit anxious but uh, more excited though yeah and i'm i'm quite self-confident i i suppose just being honest and even though i'd only ridden small bikes i've got quite good bike handling skills so maybe three years ago i did snow biking in japan on a 450 and i was very nervous for that because i'd never ridden a bike that big or heavy and definitely never in the snow but i picked it up quite well and within just a day i was riding it pretty confidently so that gave me even more confidence that, okay, it's going to be hard. It's a heavy bike, but within, you know, a few days, you should be fine. Mm. But yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. When I, when we bought the bike, the guy was like, I think the guy I was buying it from seemed a little <laughs> concerned about what we told him we were doing. And he was like showing me how to put it on the, on the, on the main center stand. And I couldn't get it on it initially because it's so heavy. And then we we, and we were just telling him that we're going around the world. We're gonna go. We're gonna go on this big adventure. Yeah. Like, mm. But then we got it home. My parents live on a farm, so I was riding it around the farm a bit. But I just kept thinking, this bike is so heavy, and there's not one piece of luggage on it, and one, and there's only one person on it. But oh, and okay, my parents were they were fine about the trip. They're very super excited for me. Like they've got a background with bikes. They would have loved to have done something like this, I think, but just never really had the opportunity, but they did some touring in, in, in Europe and in the UK. So they were excited for us. Lucy's parents, definitely not. No, they, <laughs> they've they always been a, super against bikes. I think um, my mum's family member had a bad accident on the bike and she's just forever hated them and I've never been brought up around them at all. 
So they were quite nervous. And like I said, in, in denial that we were going on this trip until the day that we, day, the day that we left. Um, yeah. And actually we got a good story oh, there about is a that. Good story that about so, <laughs> so we, this is after we got home, I passed the test. We were able to start doing some, like a bit of riding. So we rode the bike together from my parents' house to Lucy's parents' house. It's like an hour and a half. We stayed there a few days. But my parents live on a really big hill, very steep hill. And <laughs> pulling out of the drive, um, he was very close to my parents' car and he had a little topple, right? <laughs> I dropped the bike on her dad's on, car. On the car. Oh, no way. Did you? Oh. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. I have two things I want to tell you about. Stay with us. we got a lot more coming up. Sometimes comfort is mistaken for luxury, but when it comes to riding a motorcycle, comfort means less fatigue and less fatigue means not only a more enjoyable ride, but it also means a safer ride because we all understand that fatigue draws us down, slows our reactions, clouds our good judgment. Comfort is really important for us riders. So when I think of the Atlas throttle lock, I not only think of the comfort I get from it, those two solid buttons with positive feedback, the ability to adjust the throttle up and down without disengaging it, the, the fact that it gives my wrist and hand a rest from gripping the throttle. Don't you notice on your, on your left hand, how your left hand is always relaxed, but your right hand is clenched to hold that throttle. That's just part of riding. But when the road opens up, clenching your hand is kind of redundant. That's why the Atlas throttle lock is there. It takes that, that clench away from you, gives you time to relax, makes your ride more comfortable and lessens fatigue on you. And the Atlas works so well. I mean, it's so refined in design that you tend to use it without thinking about it. You know, you just sort of expect it to be there for you. It becomes that standard part of your equipment, equipment that you can count on, I always like to say. That's the hallmark of a great product. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. When you see a bunch of adventure motorcycles stood in a parking lot, you'll see all kinds of tires, panniers, bags, straps, things like that, all customized to meet the rider's wants and needs and looks, etc. But when you spot a set of IMS foot pegs on a bike, then you know that's a serious rider. Because serious riders know the difference in performance foot pegs will make, and they understand the value in investing in those and how much it will improve their riding skills. When IMS builds these pegs, they use everything they've learned from way back in 1976 when IMS started, right up till now. They use everything they've learned off the racetrack because over all that time, just about every podium finisher in off-road racing has had an IMS product on it. They take all that data and then they build these Adventure Bike Series foot pegs. And every detail, right down to the angle of the back of the casting, which is designed to shed mud and, and reduce clogging, they call it watershed design, or the two rows of staggered teeth meant to increase grip and not rip up your soul. I mean, all of these things make the difference. And of course, the material they use to make them, 17-4 cast certified stainless steel, they test them so extensively and they are so confident in these products that they cover them with a lifetime warranty. Lifetime. Now, even one step further, they're made in the USA where quality control can be monitored at the highest level. Seriously, if you don't have them, you should have. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Oh, 
so you, I, can just, I, I was going to ask you if they were shaking their head when you when you pulled away, but, but there's they, no. were, they refused to come out the house to see the bike. Initially. No, I don't. No, no, no. I don't think they were. They knew it happened. I um, we we were late already for an appointment, so I phoned them and I was like, "Dad, we're going to yeah. discuss the dent on your car later. But don't worry about it now." <laughs> so yeah, that was our first fall of the bike. Whoops! <laughs> the first of many. Wow, so, and uh, that doesn't shake you up at all. That doesn't make you question your confidence. <laughs> no, it was just embarrassing. Yeah, but when when we when it got closer to the trip and the day we loaded everything on the bike, I just couldn't believe how heavy it was, to be honest. You know, mm-hmm. just getting it off the side stand was difficult. You know, with time, it gets easy, right? You use your weight as you swing your leg over, you, you throw your weight over and it's and it's fine. Mm-hmm. But when you f- don't know how to do that, you just get on the bike and then try and lift it up with your leg. And it's, yeah, it feels very heavy. But this bike, as I'm sure many people listening will know, it's a really easy and balanced bike and really nice to ride once it's rolling. It's the toughest part is when you're in city traffic and you're just crawling along the road, stop, start, stop, start. This is the, the yeah. tough part, balancing it. Now everything is, is fine as, as you'd hope it would be after like 20,000 kilometers. But yeah, the first, uh, I'd say the first thousand or more, 2,000 yeah, I'd come up to lights and definitely still be a bit kind of wobbly just with the weight and in traffic and there's some stalling with the clutch just to get used to it. But we're starting in the UK and then riding through Europe. We were familiar with the roads and the rules and, you know, the traffic is a bit more sensible. So it was a good kind of training ground for us. And we figured, okay, we could delay the trip a month or a few weeks and we could do a tour, you know, around England or around our counties and you know, do some camping and test everything. Or we could just leave and do that as we go. And we always said to each other, look, we're going to try this. We know it's going to be difficult. We know there are going to be parts of the trip where we're going to question why we did it, or it's going to really test us individually, physically, as a couple. We know this. But if it comes to the point where we're not enjoying it, or we just think we can't do it, we'll just stop and we'll sell everything and we'll travel another way. So that was what we'd always agreed with each other. Yeah. So the, the bike isn't necessarily for a passion you know, of, of motorcycles, or at least it didn't start out that way. It's a mode of transportation almost, and maybe a cool mode of that. Yeah, I'd say so. I, I've always loved bikes and I don't know why I didn't do my license when I was younger, but yeah, I've always been a lover of anything on two wheels. So I was super excited to be doing this on a, on, on a bike. And, you know, I, I was always reading adventure books and watching the Long Way series. Um, so for me, yeah, I wouldn't say a passion. I can't say it's a passion because I wasn't, didn't have a bike for so many years. But, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to be doing it on a bike. The thing is, though, after it's- riding 20,000 kilometers, I mean, yes, you do certainly have a certain amount of experience. But you may be doing some things that are, are downright wrong or dangerous even. I mean, I mean, it's like operating a chainsaw. You can take a chainsaw and sort of get the hang of how to work it. But somebody who knows how to work a chainsaw might see you, you know, cutting from the, the top of the tip or something say, geez, don't do that. This thing's going to kick back and, and gouge into your leg <laughs> and you're not aware of it. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. And, uh, I can't, can't argue with it to be honest, because we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes you don't learn these things as a biker and unless you've got years of experience and you've been through these situations. Um, and I think some, 
some we learn the hard way and I'm sure we still have many lessons to learn and I just hope that we don't learn them in such a hard way that it you know causes damage to us or the bike or anything mm-hmm. we we ride pretty sensibly like when we're on the road we don't we rarely go over 100 kilometers an hour just because it just gets noisy and you use more fuel so we we cruise fairly steady uh I think we ride pretty steady generally but we like off-road we would like to seek out off-road as much as we can, even though we're two up on this big bike. Uh, but as of yet, we've, we've not really been anywhere super remote. So we're on off-road tracks where someone will come across you if something happens like fairly soon. Well, just the idea that you, that you like that, that you guys are, are interested and you're actually looking for off-road tells you something about your confidence and your ability to control the bike. And that's great to hear. Uh, you ended up on, mm. on the Trans-Euro Trail in Albania um, accidentally. Can you talk about that? yeah so we it was it was accident we didn't know that it was the the tet but we knew that it was an off-road route so there's a loop in albania um where on the way up you go up on a road and if you don't go down the same way you can go around and it's uh an off-road route so we'd met some overlanders and they told us a little bit about this so we thought this is our first off-road of the trip let's give it a go you know we saw a few other people headed that direction. So we just thought, yeah, we try. So when you say off-road though, what sort of off-road? Like what, what are you expecting? We were expecting gravel. No, we weren't expecting rocks. We were expecting gravel. Yeah, we were expecting gravel, but we got like big rocks, loose rocks, very steep hills. It was hard, Jim. Um, <laughs> yeah, it were, we, to, if, I think if we would have known what it was, um, and maybe if we didn't know there were going to be other people helping, we might have changed our mind, but we, we started the route, um, the evening before or the afternoon before, after we did a hike and it was all gravel and we were saying, yeah, this is fine. This, this is going to be good. If it's like this all the way, you know, we've got this, it's just a gravel track. Um, so we camped somewhere overnight and then we carried on the next morning. And luckily we came across two other riders, Mark and Lisa from Germany, who we actually ended up traveling with for like six weeks later on the trip. But at this point we just met them. And it was them that told us we were on the Tet. And I was quite happy about this because I'd been like searching Tet routes uh, for the last few countries, but we hadn't yet plucked up the courage to do one or found the right, like if, if it's near our route or if it's not raining or so on. So I was pretty happy it was a, it was a trans-Europe trail route. Yeah, it was definitely exciting. And yeah. it was amazing that we had met Mark and Lisa because to do it with them just gave us another like boost of confidence. Yeah. It was great to tackle this as a team. And you said you started out, it was gravel and then it became rocks. So, so talk about that. What happened? Yeah, it just, thankfully it gradually got more difficult, which I think helped us because you slowly, we were getting a little bit more confident with the bike. We have, um, helmet communication. So we're constantly talking to each other. Like, are we going to stand up? Are we going to sit down? And slowly we, we learned that we have to ride this thing as a team, which is great for Lucy. And she'll talk about that more, but the, the gravel just started to get a little bit more loose and a little bit more deep in places. So we were sort of struggling a little bit more with the steering at certain points. And then the rocks got a little bit bigger, so it wasn't really gravel anymore. And there were sections, there was a couple of small like stream river crossings, nothing too challenging, but again, a new thing for us. So we stop and we walk it and slowly go through. But then the rocks were getting bigger and there was a couple of sections where... It was super steep. Yeah, it was steep. It was big rocks and for our bike with the weight that's kind of the worst combination and there was a bit where there was a a rock 
ledge. So we, everyone stopped and we had to build some, some sort of stones against it. And we were doing really well. The only times we dropped it, which was six times that day, <laughs> was when we were coming to a stop because the rocks were just so like bumpy and the bike is so heavy. If I can't put my foot, my feet down or one foot down on a solid place, and I know that both wheels are kind of stopping on a smooth surface, it can be quite hard to, to balance it. Yeah. So at times really, it would just it would just fall as we were stopping or that, or starting. That was really the only time we did drop it. There was no times where we were when we were moving or anything. It was just to get the balance right when we were stopping and starting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's that's awesome. But it was great. It was such a challenge. And it was like the hottest day. We were sweating. We were just all day on this track with these other two riders and there were some overlanders that were kind of helping each other. And it was just such a cool day of riding. It's such a good experience. Everyone coming together, like meeting one another and helping one another through difficult sections. And yeah, we loved it. We loved it. Matt, when, when you're riding this, you've, you've got your bike loaded up, this big R1200, you've got Lucy on the back. And when you drop it, how do you feel? Uh, I don't really care, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I mean, you're not saying you don't care about Lucy on the back. <laughs> no, so when, when we fall... Most times we're, we're not moving, so we just step off. And we've got soft, like semi-rigid bags. So even if Lucy's uh, foot gets stuck, foot gets stuck on, gets stuck under it. Um, she's got proper adventure boots on, and it's soft luggage, so it doesn't it doesn't hurt her or anything. So we te- we tend to be able to just step off the bike and not be, you know, caught under it in any way. Mm-hmm. But I would say. We were doing so well on this road. I said, this is amazing. We haven't dropped it once. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we get to the end and we didn't have any falls? And then like, I think 50 meters later, I, I dropped it. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I mean, everybody does that. Everybody drops their bikes. I mean, and especially I'm thinking yeah. of you guys riding oh. two up. Well, with no experience, I, I really think you got to give yourself a, a real pat on the back because with no experience, two up with all your gear off-road, that's pretty darn good. Everybody on the road was looking at us like we were crazy. <laughs> yeah, we went past a tour of bikes. I think they were on like F800s and similar size bikes. No luggage or minimal luggage, like a day tour. And we rode past them on this rocky section and they all just stared at us. And then, and I think then it, we're kind of talking to each other like, are we mad? Like, is it really, <laughs> you know, right. should we not be doing this? <laughs> Do they but know something? Not, Are they seeing something we're not seeing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, does it get that much harder? <laughs> but no, we, we, we made it through and it was, it was just such a good feeling that we managed to do it. And we tested our limitations that day, I think, and I think discovered what we liked uh, about that kind of riding and what, what was challenging and what we, what we perhaps could do going forward in the trip. Yeah, I feel that you're not challenging yourself enough if you're not having these falls, you know? You're if you're not falling then you're not you're just in your comfort zone. You've mm. got to push your limits. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to learn. <laughs> or you're you're really a good rider and you're not gonna fall. I mean, you know, most times you won't fall. Right. There could be that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I know what you're Maybe. saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for us this uh, you know, a new start. Yeah, and we're, especially we're for expected to have w- some falls. Yeah. And when we're on the road, Lucy's Mostly just sitting there, right? Uh, yeah. Work, so, working with the bike a bit, but off-road is totally different. Yeah. So off-road is my favorite type of riding because I'm just as much a part of the ride as Matt is. We're standing up and I'm balancing the bike at the back and full-on concentration on the roads ahead and the obstacles. Wow. So I love I love the off-road. So you guys do it the style of you both stand? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't know how you could do it any other way, to be honest. I can really feel it if the bike's getting a bit out of I don't think it would be balance. so fun for me. No. No, no, no. That's the thing. The pillion really has to be not only in tune, but be willing to do it. Like There's a, there's a certain yeah. level of confidence you need to be able to stand up on the back. But it's certainly a lot easier if the person on the back stands up. The pillion is standing with you. You've got that weight removed from the bike. And I mean, I, I completely understand why you're doing it. For yeah, sure. it's, this it's, is my this is my time to get involved in the riding. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's almost a rule, right? If I'm stood up, Lucy will stand up, and we'll tell each other when we're going to stand up, sit down, so that we're constantly working together as a team. Yeah. And as the rider, you can really feel it when she moves her weight to the side. It can often save us from from falling. Oh, I think I think I've definitely saved a few falls. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So doing that, it it gave us the the confidence going forward in the trip to seek out some more challenging roads that you hear about like these you know the world's most dangerous road website kind of lists a few <laughs> so we were mapping them in turkey and georgia and riding like the abano pass in georgia there's this d915 military road in in turkey and that i would say maybe none of them were more challenging than that day on the tet or, or maybe they were on par but they had huge drops to the side which is what makes them dangerous you know you make a mistake and you go over the edge and well, that's that's the end. Mm-hmm. Well, you you're probably feeling very good, obviously, when you finished your off-road section, but you ended up taking a fall in Albania that landed you in the hospital. What happened there? Yeah. Yeah, this this brought us crashing back to reality a little bit, actually. It did. It was only a few days later. This was just on a, a mountain pass. It was on tarmac. It was on... Um, just, just a, a norm, corner. Just a normal just road. Just a normal yeah. corner. We were going very, very slowly. And the back wheel slipped out and we ended up spinning and the bike flipped over and mm. I got a little bit caught up in it and <laughs> the foot peg hit me right between my legs and it was a very unfortunate place. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so like doing any damage, you mean, or just like severe pain and bruising and stuff? It, it, yeah, it did do some damage. I had like a huge lump, like the size of an egg. Oh, man. Um, so- but I didn't, we, we, the accident happened and we kind of got, you know, got off the bike and we were like, are you okay? And we're okay. Yeah, we're fine. I just hurt a little bit here. But we kind of like figured that we were okay. And we took some time just to gather ourselves and pick up the bike and put everything back, you know. Um, like a pannier had uh, been ripped off and the tank bag had kind of emptied itself. So yeah. we had to mm. fix that back up a little bit. And we just took some, I think uh, maybe 20 minutes later, we were back on the road again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were on the road for maybe one hour and we stopped in this tiny little village. And when I got off, I was in agony. Like I couldn't move. I was just in so much pain. And I was like, we've got to check <laughs> what this damage is down here. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I just don't know. It was worrying. Um, I was scared, Jim, because she was just, you know, the way she was looking at me. And I was thinking, I, I don't know what to do here. And we yeah. were in this small town where there wasn't really anything going on, but Everything, everything in this town was shut completely. There was this one shop. Um, it, it was an old guy. He had a clove shop. So Matt went over and with no language at all, <laughs> common yeah, language. Yeah, he didn't speak a word of English. <laughs> no we didn't know any Albanian. Um, we were trying to get his, like, get into his shop and have some privacy to see what's going on. <laughs> and bless him, he let us have the shop and he put his. Um, clothes rails around and he made like a little little room for us oh, and he wow. closed the shop for us and um, I really had this huge lump it was the size of an egg if not bigger 
and we decided that we should go get it checked out. So um, we ended up in a hospital very close by and the ambulance took us. We didn't want an ambulance. We just tried to communicate with this guy. He was like, can we please like, take your car? Um, but an ambulance come. <laughs> and police. And police, And like yeah. a crowd of people oh. just arrived out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. But luckily there was an, um, a hospital like just five minutes down the road. Uh, and we went there, but they kind of took one look at me and was like, no, actually you need to go to this hospital, which was an hour back where we had just come from and spent a few days. Oh, that, that's gotta <laughs> um, be scary for you though. That moment, Lucy, when they tell you that, no, 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 you, you can't be here. You've got to go to a different hospital. Cause that tells yeah, you it's been it was, upped, like it's, it's more serious than what you thought. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a small hospital. So I don't think they had the tools to like do any x-rays or um, CT scans or whatever we needed. Mm-hmm. So it was back down this mountain pass <laughs> in this ambulance, which was the worst ride of my life. It was so bumpy and they were speeding so fast. And you're in the ambulance um, by yourself and Matt is following with a bike? Yeah, Matt was following on the bike, mm-hmm. trying to keep up. <laughs> yeah, it was after falling, like my confidence was definitely hit then. And this this was one of those examples of you don't know what you don't know. So the, the wheels slipped out because the road surface was just really slippery. So we sort of looked around after the crash and it really was quite slick. It wasn't wet or anything. It was just the type of tarmac it was, an old road. It was just really slick. So I wasn't reading the surface very well, obviously. And yeah, we weren't going fast and it, it just happened out completely out of nowhere. I, not one second. It didn't feel like to try to correct the bike to save it. So after that, well, well hang on. I, I was to ask really, you about that because we, when you mentioned yeah. that, I was going to go back to that, but since we're here now, mm. The the bike should have traction control on it, which does a lot for yeah, that it sort does. Of problem. It's all on. It's all turned on. But it's all, all turned on, and yet the the back end still came around. And now, did you hit the brakes, or, or how did you? What did? You, what was your response? No, was- I didn't have a chance to do anything. So it was it was quite a nice road. It was like a, a windy road, but we were going fairly slow. Like we'd ridden some roads in, in Germany and so on, and re- we'd really got our confidence up to to lean the bike into corners together, but we weren't doing any of that on this road. We were just cruising, but it was leaned, it was leaned over a bit and it, it really happened out of nowhere. So I wasn't, mm. I didn't have time to react at all on the brakes or anything. It was just, you're on the floor. Yeah. That's unnerving. Um, and it, I didn't notice the bike try to do anything to be honest. Yeah. It does happen, but yeah, unnerving, isn't it? I mean, it, it just steals away your confidence. Yeah. It oh, did. It and took it, us months to get it back. It, it like did. It thousands took us of kilometers very long time to mm-hmm. get back. We, I'd be going around corners so carefully. We were not leaning the bike at all. <laughs> it was really wow. a huge difference in like confidence in yeah. in riding around corners for a long time. Let's jump back to to Lucy. You, so you ended up going to the other hospital. Yep, I ended up going to the other hospital, and they gave me so many scans and. To cut the long story short, I had a hematoma, so it was just a, a a big blood clot. So they kept us in for one night in the hospital. They wanted to check it because if it had grown or if it didn't go down in size the next day, they maybe would have had to drain it. Um, so we had a free night stay in the hospital. Matt was with us. Yeah. <laughs> with <me. laughs> yeah. Well, in the, in the meantime, while um, I was initially when they told Lucy she had to go back to the other hospital. They told me I had to stay in this little town with the bike to like explain what happened. And I just said, no, like I have to stay with Lucy and not letting her go 
to a random hospital in Albania and not know where it is or what's going on. So I just took off behind this this ambulance and just followed it. Oh, so the, so the cop is standing there telling you, you need to stay and you just said, forget it, I'm leaving? I just said no. And he didn't really try and stop me, all right? Uh, but he just kept saying, you need, you need to like explain what happened. But then halfway back at the site of the accident, there were like two or three police cars there and they pulled me over. And I, I was like shouting to them, I, I have to follow the ambulance. Like, I don't know what hospital it's going to. I need to stay with Lucy. And they just said, nope. And they stopped me and they questioned me and they breathalyzed me and they made me show them exactly what had happened. And then they fined me for losing control of the bike. Oh, wow. Which was a surprise. Well, I was like, well, but nobody was around. Like we didn't hit anyone. We didn't hit anything. Why, why do I get a fine? Yeah. <laughs> Just these things happen. But they said, well, you have to pay something. Like you had an accident, you have to find you. And it was 14 euros. So when they said that and they said, you go and pay it in the town, you get an official receipt. I said, fine. So then I followed a police car back to this town that drove even faster than the ambulance, <laughs> overtaking everything it came across for no reason at all. It wasn't really a rush to get back that much. And then I kept thinking, are they trying to like, get me to, you know, speed to or follow. crash and then find me again. <laughs> but we met, we made it back and it was all official and I found Lucy and, and yeah, it was, end, ended up being okay. But it took forever and I was just sat in the hospital and I was like, oh, what's happened to Matt? Like, has he crashed again? Like, yeah. oh no. Because yeah. <laughs> he was, should have been right behind me. Yeah. <laughs> and I had no idea. And do you have any sort of protocol set up now between the two of you, if you get separated like that again, how you, you're going to communicate or what's going to happen? That's a good idea, that's Jim. A, that's a very good idea. We've not thought about this. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Because you hear this sometimes when people travel together on separate bikes. And and if you don't work that out ahead of time, that gets really confusing when you get separated in, in a town that neither knows or in a country that neither is used to in a language yeah. that you don't speak. It's It can be... Well, yeah, you're right. We, Generally, we there's actually. not much risk of us getting separated. Yeah. Like in all of these countries... I wouldn't have a SIM card, Matt would, and I'd usually just hotspot off his phone. So actually, we don't really have much, no, <laughs> you know. I think, I think we'd figure out anyway. if it happened again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can connect to other people's phones and, you know, phone. Do, do you guys carry a, a satellite okay. uh, transmitter or anything like that for, you know, the, the emergency thing? No, we did think about this before we left, but mm. we figured that we were just never going to be in so much of a remote place that we'd need one. Yeah. We'd, There'd always be someone around. Yeah, either someone around or we have signals. So no, we don't have. You also had a problem with a black bear. And I'm very curious about this. You you, you <laughs> listened, <laughs> laying terrified in your tent, less than 10 feet away, while black bears destroyed your bike? I think it was actually a big brown bear. <laughs> oh, there's a big Even difference bigger. here. There's a yeah. big difference between black and brown. But yeah, okay, where are you when this happens, first of all? We're in Turkey. So I, I saw the bear. I don't know what type of bear it was, but it wasn't it wasn't huge. I'd call it a medium-sized bear. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what type of bear, though. But um, So we we were near Lake Van in, in Turkey, and we, we heard about this place called Nemrut Crater. It's like an old volcano with this huge crater in the middle of it, so big that you can ride all the way down this road, like several kilometers into the crater, and there's a huge lake. It's it's stunning. It's a really beautiful place. And you can camp there. And so we read about this camp on Iovalanda. Very popular place. Yeah, and most people mentioned there's a family of bears there, and you're likely to see them. But 
the way they described it was like it's such a cool experience yeah this will be a cool thing to yeah. do you know you you'll be fine they just walk around and you know they maybe they'll look for some food and and that's it and there was no reports of any anyone like having a bad experience so we thought let's go and, and let's let's figure it out so we get there and we we go to meet this this guy selling tea in a little hut by the lake again we'd read about this on Iverlander so we went to talk to him ask him about the bears and in his broken English, he explained, it's it's safe. They will come through the camp. You'll hear them. You'll see them. But all they're looking for is food. So, so do you have food? Yeah. So if you have any food, give it to me. So we did. We gave him all our food. And he put it in his hut. So we thought, everything is fine. We put the bike away next to our tent. We put the cover on like we always do. We went to bed. And then we woke up at 10, 30, 11 to just grunting and heavy breathing and ripping and bashing <laughs> and we're like and the tea man coming out and say and chewing them away yeah so the guy comes out fezzy the tea guy fezzy. he's used to these bears he's been there fezzy. for like 15 years right on and off so mm -hmm. he comes out and he shoes the bears away <laughs> even that sounds a bit wild to me but he got rid of them and i i came out and i see see the bear sort of waddling off towards the lake and yeah, I just see the bike on the floor and the tank bag has been ripped off. The windshield is missing. There's oh, pieces yeah. of seat everywhere. Our, our two small bags at the back, which we, we call, call them our kitchen. Yeah, we keep our food there. They'd just been torn to pieces. Yeah. Uh, it was like it was tissue paper. <laughs> they just destroyed this thing. And Lucy's seat was completely off the bike. So the force of them doing this had you know, broken the, the quick release mechanism. So that was on the floor. Uh, luckily, our, our top box was still there, but it was, had all these like scratches, scratches all, all over, over it. it. Yeah. So yeah, we, so I, we sort of picked everything up and we, we pieced back together as much of the seat as we could in the dark. And then Fezzi told us to move our bike to his hut. So I did that and I got on the bike in like my shorts, kind of half asleep, put my helmet <laughs> on. And there's a bear like in the track like 20 meters away and i'm like fezzy what do i do <laughs> how, do I get, how do i get my bike to your hut and he's like just go the bear will move so there i am in the in the pitched black following this bear up this track <laughs> like it's normal it's fine but in your yeah, underwear just wearing your helmet it's not far from that picture but the bear just waddled off and yeah i put the bike away and we went we went back to sleep but we woke up again at like 2 a.m by walking around our tent and hearing it and at this point we're terrified because we've just seen what it's done to our bike cover which mm -hmm. is a thin piece of material and then we get back in a thin piece of material <laughs> to go and sleep yeah <laughs> But, but they're yeah. not interested in you. They really do just want dinners, as Fe as Fezzi said. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends. Um, they can be interested in you, but usually not. But but I'll, I'll tell you, if you haven't learned it already, anytime you see any anyone or find out anyone saying that there's a regular bear, that you want to stay as far away from that spot as you yeah, can. Because yeah. regular bears are habituated to people and they're just yeah. afraid. They won't yeah. even move. They'll just stand and look at you and they'll continue to rip through your stuff. But your bike, though, yeah. you, you said your bike was all... So how much damage and how, what did you do to fix it? Oh, it was bad. So, But actually, it wasn't so bad when in we the started end, to fix it. In yeah. The end, yeah. Looking at it, it was terrible. It really was. Mm -hmm. But we had some lucky... Well, I mean, so 
coming into the crater, we met a Turkish guy and he noticed our British number plate and he was like, oh, I've lived in the UK for so many years. I'd love to catch tea with you. So we met this guy and he, um, we exchanged numbers and he said, if you need anything, just let us know. Little did he know <laughs> he would get a phone call the very next day. Yeah, that was one of those comments you just throw out there. You don't even really mean it when you say it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, every, everybody in Turkey is so nice and they're willing to help. And it made this whole experience a lot easier. They really just want to do the world for you. Um, so we did. We phoned them and we explained what had happened. And we just wanted... We wanted to get some spare parts for the bike, so we really just wanted an address to send it to. But he was like, don't worry, I'll be where you are in two minutes. And he was really, <laughs> we were um, sorting some stuff out in the town nearby, and he was really there in like 10 minutes, <laughs> um, ready wow. to help us. <laughs> yeah, so um, he introduced us to a friend, and he gave us an address where we could possibly send some spare parts to. And then in his workplace that we were at, um, someone kind of popped their head up and were like, you can stay with us for a few nights if you like to try and get this all sorted. So within you know an hour, we had an address, we had somewhere to stay, and people yeah. were helping and oh, like left, right, and center. It was really amazing. And luckily, um, near this house we were staying in, there was an upcycle furniture store, and we took our seat there, and they put new leather on it. So mm. we got a quote from... Uh, garage in Turkey for new for, new seats for a completely new seat, and it was just extortionate. It's like over a thousand euros. Yeah. Oh wow. So yeah. this was out of the picture. So we took it to this upcycle furniture store, and they we re-pieced all of the foam ourselves and glued it back together. And we just said, "Can you just please cover it, and we'll sort it out later when we get <laughs> home from our trip." <laughs> and they did Probably. such a good job. They did like, a really good job. It looked like a new seat, and oh, it was really? like fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars it cost, and you're still riding on that now. Oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I think we'll never change it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's there's something to be said for having something that's been through something like that, right? <laughs> but your your bike has survived a bear attack. What what about the windshield? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we super glued that. <laughs> yeah, it's super glued, and that was super glued for like two months, and it held perfectly fine. So that was good. Yeah. But yeah, we were when it when it happened, and we assessed the damage. We we thought. We were going to be stuck there for a while. We were only three days away from crossing the border to Iraq. And we knew that once we'd done that, we would be in places where it would be very hard to find parts or get things shipped. So we initially thought we're going to have to replace all our bags before we go. But then that soon, it soon became apparent that that would take too long. So we just patched everything up. Yeah, super glued the windshield. We got the seat sorted. Um, the tank bag super glued back to its like mounting plate and that held fine and then the bags on the back that got all ripped up we just one took of them, one off yeah one i like zip tied a few uh, it back together so that it could at least hold some food but it was none of it was like waterproof anymore and the panniers were then also quite damaged so i had to zip tie that a little bit but it it all ended up being good enough for mm. going through dry countries yeah and did you end up replacing it ultimately or are you still using it no, we replaced it in the end in Saudi and we had the new bags sent to a yeah, location we had there. New panniers and new like small, small kitchen bags and a new tank bag. Mm. Yeah. So that So bear, it didn't work out too bad. No, but the bear cost you a bit of money. Yeah. <laughs> well, thankfully we have a sponsor for the for that part of our gear. So they were super supportive and they just sent us new bags. So 
Oh, wow. Fortunately, okay. it didn't put a dent in our budget. Mm, okay. Well, that, that, that certainly, yeah, you, you do have sponsors for this. Why, why do you have sponsors? Why did you get sponsors when it, you're, like you said at the start, you were just looking to do this trip. What do sponsors do for you? What was the idea? Uh, save money. I would say is the main reason to be, to be blunt mm-hmm. well, because we were starting from absolutely nothing. This would cost us a lot of money to just gear up, let alone do the trip. Um, and we, we chose this bike knowing it would be expensive, but thinking we want a bike that's big enough for the two of us and is comfortable. It's, it's reliable. It's reliable. It's, uh, it's strong enough to carry all of our gear without needing heavy modification. Uh, so we knew it would be expensive, but then you add on everything else, it, it all, it all adds up. So we thought any money we can save, we should try and do that and get some sponsors. And we also wanted to do the, the whole social media thing and get a bit involved in the community and just see where that takes us after the trip. If it can become like a, a thing on the side or something for fun, mm-hmm. or maybe one day, you know, make, make some small side income. Some of the downsides of having the sponsor, of course, is your obligation, obviously, to the sponsor. You know, they give you something, they, they want something out of it, obviously. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. I mean, that, that, that yeah, all makes sense. Everyone understands that. Some of the other things I think of with getting sponsors is that you don't really have a choice because what you're taking for gear is really you're taking it because you got a sponsor and, you know, that's the sponsor. So they, you take their gear. You're not really choosing it because it's something you want. And the other thing that I'm wondering is how much money does it actually save you, you know, in, in, in the end to be worth it for all of that? So we chose our sponsors, actually. We were quite, I guess, lucky to do that. We just contacted the companies that we wanted to work with, i.e. things that we were going to buy anyway. So if they said no, we would still buy their product. Oh, so you already looked at the gear. You decided that's the gear I want. And then you approach the company and say, hey, you know, would you do something for us if, if we do something for you? Yeah, something? exactly. And for the for some smaller parts on our on our bike and our communication systems, there was no like formal contract because it's not it's not very high value things. It's like informal. We, we will uh, just naturally promote your things because they're in our pictures and our videos and we will name you as a sponsor and tag you in our social media posts. So that's quite straightforward. Mm. But for the bags, all of that added together is quite a lot of money. So that, that was the big one we wanted. When we started the social media uh, channel, we decided we actually want to work with the sponsor because we love their bags. We want to buy them anyway. It would be great if we could work with them and, and get them for free. Right. Well, well, let's plug your sponsors. I mean, you know, they, they did give you stuff. Yeah, so, exactly. so who do you have? So Lone Rider is supporting us with our, our bags. So they gave us panniers, uh, duffel bags, some small bags for the front of the bike, small bags for the back of the bike, and also our tent. Our tent. Yeah. yeah, of course, our tent and the tank bag. So that's a lot of stuff. Wow, you know, that that's is, a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. So and especially from Lone Rider, this is good quality stuff and it does cost a lot of money. Yeah, so mm. we make sure we, you know, we get good pictures for them, not just the, the normal kind of pictures we do for our social media, but maybe every now and then we'll do a kind of a photo shoot of their gear in a cool location. Mm-hmm. We're more than happy to do that. It doesn't take up much of our time or, or effort. But really to take pictures of this um, stuff is, is quite easy. You know, taking pictures of the bike all the time, it's just naturally in it. And that's how they so want it's it. Not, mm-hmm. it's, not so, it's not such an effort at all. Yeah, we have um, bark busters to protect all of our controls. And they have been one of the best things we put on the bike, I think. I I don't think you should have a bike without them. Every bike should have bark busters. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Uh, What else? We've got um, quad lock gear. We've got cardo systems for our communications. 
And we've got black box embedded, which make a product called Wonderlink, which allows you to connect your smartphone to the control wheel on the BMW. Oh, and what does that do for you? I've never heard of that. Uh, we actually don't use it so much. <laughs> it's a really cool bit of kit, but for our kind of riding where I always have Google Maps up and nothing else really, uh, I just don't find I'm using it that much. But if you're, if you're riding around like roads, you know, and you want, you want, you can have basically what the TFT screen shows you on the newer bikes. You can have all that on your phone oh, and you can have a screen that shows the revs. So it's a really cool bit of kit, but because I always have maps on my phone, I find that I'm not using it too much. Mm, well, I see. Right. But you can control, um, like you can control your music with the Wonder Wheel. So you, it it kind of does what the screen does on the new bikes, but you put it on the older version. So the the Lone Rider gear that you got, you mentioned the Lone Rider tent. How is that working yeah. out? I've always wondered about these Lone Rider tents. I, I have seen them before because the, what they they make a version where you can put your motorcycle in undercover with you in you know, sort of beside your tent. It's all part of one thing. Yeah, yeah we don't have that we, one. We don't have this one. We have the the smaller version that packs down, like really small and mm-hmm. quite lightweight. But the tent is super easy to put up, and it's just big enough for like a double, small double mattress. It's perfect for the two of us. Yeah, I mean, we can't really compare it to any others, so it's hard to give a thorough review. But it does everything we need it to do, and it packs small enough. It it, it fits on in one of our duffels on the side of our of our bag. Um, and yeah, it's, it's good for us. Well, really the quality of a tent only ever comes out in, in severe weather. So if you've had it in some like teeming down rain, storm weather, that's when you're really going to say, Hey, this thing's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, other than the minor things, I mean, you know, if you have a, a, maybe a, a, no vestibule on it, that would bother you, you know, those sorts of things, zippers that they get caught or, or all small things like that. But the main thing is, is that heavy weather. Yeah, we've been in some rain. I'd say not like crazy rain, but fairly heavy rain, and it's it's never leaked once. And I, I think the the telling thing is we've never found anything on it that's caused us a problem, like dodgy zippers or anything breaking or the poles breaking. Mm. It's all it's all just worked as it should for the whole trip so far. Oh, it's I, all I like still in one piece. I, yeah. I, I like that. I always think that it, that tells you something about a product. If you just use it and you tend to not pay attention to it, and it does everything and it does it right then you know it's 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 doing its job, right? Yeah, exactly. That's really good. So how long is this going to go on for for you guys? Where are you headed? Yeah, so our bike should arrive on uh, on Saturday, tomorrow morning, after a whole debacle of trying to get it out of Sudan because we, we flew out of Sudan on Monday. on Monday and we were told the bike would come the next day and then the agent goes quiet after we've given him $3,000 in cash and oh. left our bike in custom. <laughs> mm. So they can't get hold of the agent for like a day and a half. We managed to get hold of someone eventually and they say the bike can't fly because it's got too much fuel in it. And we're not there to do anything about this. Oh. Um, and we've had this conversation with them before we left. We explained there's maybe five liters or something left in the tank. It's hard to drain on these on these bikes. We can't just like unplug a, a drain. It You know, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could siphon it out, but I did some research and it sounded like that would still leave some fuel in the tank. So we said, can we just leave it? And everyone said, yes, even the dangerous goods guy. But they, they x-rayed it and then decided, actually, it's got too much in. But fortunately, we connected with a great group of bikers in Sudan, the Sudan Dakar bikers. So I called them, and in an hour, he was at customs with the bike, talking to them about what to do. He confirmed they, we'd have to drain it. 
So I talked him through how he could undo the, the keyless cap without, you know, reconnecting the battery. So he did that. He siphoned it out and yeah, wrapped it up again and it, and it's already in Jeddah now. So amazing support from the biker community in Sudan. That's incredible. How did you oh, bump these into biker them? communities across the world are amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's been, so we didn't, the thought of trying to connect with a biker club didn't even cross our minds throughout most of the trip until we decided to change our route and go through the Middle East to, to Africa. Uh, part of that uh, diversion would be going through Iraq. And we were following two Irish guys, uh, David and Philip. They go by like the biking Irish on, on Instagram. So we were kind of following their route and decided we do almost exactly what they did. And we saw that they had connected with the Iraq bikers uh, to get some support going through this country. So we did the same there. And they were, they were just amazing, so especially in federal Iraq. Every city we wanted to visit, there was a bike club waiting for us. The captain would meet us. He would give us somewhere to stay. He would feed us. One of them even put petrol in our bike for us. Like we, wow. we really didn't need to do anything. Amazing hosting and so cool to meet them. And yeah, they're, they're not how I would have pictured a rack bike club to mm -hmm. be like. They're oh, no. such kind human beings and they just want to help. And for anyone else listening that's thinking of doing that route, they're, they are just eagerly awaiting bike travelers to come through and to meet. So that was our first experience with a bike club. Then in Sudan, I had an ex-colleague who is Sudanese, so he connected us with the head of the entire bike network in Sudan, and he kind of, we met him, we went for dinner with his family, and he's introduced us to some of the, the clubs, we had some dinners and things, and connected with them that way. In Sudan, the bike network is huge, there's so many different clubs there, Yeah, and lots nice? of uh, big bikes, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, they're all on adventure bikes. They yeah. they. they they don't have, you know, all the money in the world, but they, they just love their biking so much and they love their club. They're like a family. They, they tell us all our houses are open to each other. You know, another club member can just come by and stay whenever he wants. It's like really? one wow. big brotherhood. So it's very active. Yeah. The club is very active. Yeah, they're meeting all the time. He's, he, we got a, a picture and a video just yesterday of them having this big meeting to celebrate the fact that, a guy had just got a, a, a an Africa twin, like a kind of newer one, yeah. 2007 or something. But for, for him, that's like a, a big achievement to get such a kind of nice new bike. Hmm. So you, you were saying though about, so once you get do get all this sorted, you get reunited with your motorcycle, which hopefully is going to happen without a, without a glitch at this yeah. point. So where do you go from there? I mean, you're, you're on the east side of Africa now. Um, like south southeast side uh, of Africa, where do you yeah. go? So I think we'll we'll spend ten days going around sort of southern Kenya a little bit, then cross to Tanzania, and throughout the next maybe three months, maybe more, depends how it's all going. We'll just work our way through all of the southern southern African countries, really: Malawi, yeah. Tanz Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, all the Namibia, way to South Africa. South Africa. Mm. And, and in South Africa, we might uh, spend just a few months there. Yeah. And then what happens after I'm, South Africa? I mean, and, and the, the return trip right now, as it, as it stands, your your way is sort of blocked on the east side. That That's the desirable route. What do you do? Yeah, so the, the plan so far is to spend a few months in South Africa and then actually um, fly the bike home to the UK. Uh, but just... <laughs> 
we've been at this Jungle Junction um, campsite for a few days now and we're talking to these overland travellers and we're just having the thoughts of like, well, maybe we should go up the west coast of Africa to, <laughs> to ride back home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so already so. We're, we're thinking, what well, should we do more? But <laughs> I don't know. Let, let's see how the rest of Africa goes and how our budget looks when we finished and, and how we're feeling. It would be awesome to do more, but then where does it end? <laughs> do you have a hard, uh, like, is there, is there an end for this, a hard end for you? In other words, is there a point or a time or something that you guys have set up and say, okay, we can't go beyond that. I guess what I'm getting to is, there, is there any chance that you're going to get to South Africa and then find yourself going over to South America? Oh, <laughs> I'd love to, love yeah. to. But so Lucy's passport runs out kind of soon and we have to be in South Africa by end of March and then we'll have to renew it. So assuming we can get it renewed, then there's not there's not too many things like stopping us continuing other than our own life plans and you know we'd like to start a family someday and I don't I don't think we're we're going to be the kind of people that just continue riding around the world forever. So there's not there's not fixed deadlines on these on on our trip, but we know that we're, we're, this isn't going to be our life for the next you know few years. It was always going to be it was always going to be a year to be honest. Yeah. Mm. When you start a family, your kids will see an amazing story. I mean, this is this is something incredible that you'll be able to share with them, and most likely yeah. inspire them to do something similar. I mean, that's a that's a great. I hope uh, so. I really hope so. But be, being on the road and meeting other travelers, you know, places like where we're staying now, but also just as you're going through places, you see people from all walks of life and all ages traveling. Maybe not on a bike if you have a family, unless they're older kids, but, you know, in a car, in a truck, with, with a baby, with a small child. So I think before the trip, we kind of thought, well, if we want a family, that's the end of travel for quite a few years. But then you meet people and realize that if you really want to travel, if that's how you want your life to be, there's, there's so many ways to do it. There's so many ways to support yourself while you're on the road, so many ways to, to you know, live on the road. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And you can travel at any age. Just the other day, we met a guy, he was 75 years old, and he was um, riding a huge truck back from... In Sudan. Where was it, from Sudan? Yeah. No, it was his, before that. It was in Khartoum. We just saw his huge overlanding truck, one of these kind of 13-ton lorries or something, mm-hmm. and it was bright yellow. And it had written on the side all the continents and it was like Oasis Overland or something. And so we just went in the hotel and we're like, oh, so it had British plates. So we went in the hotel and thought we need to find who this guy is and talk to him. And yeah, he's, he, it's his friend's company. And he said, his mate just called him and said, our driver has just got typhoid in Ethiopia. I need you to fly to Addis Ababa in like two days and drive this truck back to Spain. And then maybe also drive it for the whole 42-week tour all the way around Africa. <laughs> so he just tells his wife, I'm going to Africa for a year. <laughs> At 75 years old. Mm-hmm. 75 amazing. years old. Amazing. Yeah. Really good. So we'll always have this opportunity. Yeah. We will always have this opportunity yeah. to travel. And I think we will always find a way. Yeah. And who knows, we will definitely bring back a bike. Yeah. Lucy's going to be on a bike next yeah, time. Yeah, I'll be on it next time. I'll be on my own. <laughs> You're getting the bug to ride it instead of be a pillion. What was your choice to be a pillion rather yeah. than ride another bike? Oh, just just because I had 
no idea how to ride a bike and I was never brought up around them. So I was never really comfortable. Mm. Um, I loved being a pillion on like these trips to Thailand when we were riding and on a moped. Um, and obviously being in Singapore, we didn't really have the opportunity to, to do a bike license or training. Or, or anything. Yeah. So it, it just didn't happen, but I, it will for sure in the future. Mm. You did do the, Lucy did do the compulsory basic training in, UK before we left, just thinking it's a good idea for her to get on a bike and have a ride and understand the controls and how it works and just have a little bit more familiarization oh, about the bike. So we did that. And yeah. then we did think maybe throughout the trip, there would be opportunities to, for her to go on a small bike just for, you know, some, so she's a bit more free, mm -hmm. but it just hasn't worked like worked out like that so far. Right. No, I think in South Africa, when we get settled for a few months, I'd definitely try and get a little moped and start my start my journey there yeah. <laughs> as a driver. Well, there's no doubt. And, and a second bike is going to double a lot of your costs. I mean, so there's a lot of sense made. Uh, exactly. Yeah. This yeah. Is, yeah. Um, looking at that, uh, sure. thinking back to that spreadsheet. The other thing I want to ask you about, you, <laughs> you guys said that the trip has taught you some amazing life lessons and, and you think it's probably going to change the course of your lives. What are some of those lessons that you've learned? So it's been really interesting seeing how different people live around the world and how they, they treat us as just complete strangers and, and travelers. We feel like we've received so much throughout the trip. And most of these people just want nothing in return. They just want to help you. And the way people have treated us like that has, has kind of increased as actually we left and got further away from Europe into sort of Turkey, the Middle East, and then, and then Sudan. So I think we'll always remember that, you know, even when we go back to the UK and hopefully it, it makes us much better people remembering how much the sort of the world or the universe has given us and mm -hmm. supported us throughout this trip, but not expecting anything back. So yeah. that's, that's one thing. We will I, definitely become couch surf hosts when we get back to the UK. And we yeah, couch surf and is amazing. <laughs> that's a amazing community. You're, you're talking about couch surfing the program where you're, you're, you're going and staying at people's homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is the first time we did it on this trip. And the more you do it, the more I think you're just so grateful, right? These people give you a room, they usually give you food, and they're just interested to meet you. So we'd love to give back to that community. And I think it's, I'd say as a couple, a trip like this is very testing. If you can make it through something like this, then you're solid. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, it's really helped us as a couple, like, figure some stuff out. and. You know, you are living in each other's pockets. Everything you do is, is together. You have no, like, it's very difficult to have your own time. Um, you don't have work or anything like that. So you, you learn, I think, even more about each other, even though we've been together for seven years before the trip. I think we, we've, we've learned more about one another and how to, you know, han handle one another and work together as a team. and Handle one another. Handle one another. <laughs> <laughs> and Lucy, <laughs> Funny is it term. still solid? It is still solid. Oh, We're still doing really good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely loving this trip so far and all of the challenges it's, t it's bringing us. It's just all part of the adventure and it's been really great. And I think one of the biggest things for the two of us is confidence after this trip in what we're, what we're capable of, mm. you know? Yeah. We, we, we started with, with nothing. Like you said, we didn't, we didn't know what we were doing, but we learned, you know, with one kilometer at a time, we learned and 
we just take each ride as it comes. We ride from city to city, and before you know it, you're in Kenya. Um, and I think when we think back to having done this and made it to Cape Town, hopefully, uh, I think it'll give us a lot of confidence in you know other things we can do in life or ideas or dreams that perhaps before may have just felt like a dream, something that can't do that. You know, that's only only like crazy people or rich people or special people do things like that. But now we've done one of those things. I think that'll that'll. And for problems as well, you know, problems can seem insurmountable until you learn how to work through them. And even just this problem you've had with your bike that you had to work through, those are the type of things that you learn and you gain the experience and you, and you, you build your confidence with realizing that you guys have what it takes to figure stuff out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's been a lot of that. I think <laughs> you think you're stuck somewhere until you're not. Yeah. Think something's broken until you fixed it. You know? So you just keep going. Well, hey, it's, it's been great to sit down and talk with you guys. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed your story. Matt, Lucy, thank you. And, and I'm sure we're going to talk again. Yeah, really great to talk with you, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thank you so much. That was Matt Shields and his fiance Lucy. They go by the moniker We Are Adventure Riders. You can find them on Instagram and YouTube. We've got their links and photographs in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. If you're not doing it already, we would really appreciate it if you drop our website AdventureRiderRadio.com and click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker for your toolbox, your pannier. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on Raw and it can be anywhere in between there. We've got different options available for support. Please drop by the website. Have a look what we've got there. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. And Oh, and wait, don't forget we have another show that's called ARR Raw that comes out once a month. Roundtable talks about motorcycle travel. It seems to be very popular as well. So drop by and have a look at that anywhere you get podcasts. But all that information, everything we talk about here is all available on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Each show has a separate page for it with the show notes where you've gotten links and photographs of the people we've talked to all on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Anyway, get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week. This is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 